Well, I guess like the, the kind of premise of all of this is this question. Why is there no um, music? <laughs> In the simplest terms. <laughs> like, why is there no instrumental music before the 1800s? And why is there like such only this very specific singing tradition? Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Three years ago, Linus Ori Gunnarsson Sederborg, he goes by Linus, showed up at a pub in downtown Reykjavik, Iceland, with a new mandolin he was itching to play. A few other musicians had just started a weekly session for traditional Irish music. Linus didn't come to the session as a fan of Irish music. He just wanted to play the mandolin, but the music quickly grew on him, as did the people he met through playing. The weekly session became a big part of his life, and while he enjoyed the Irish music they played, he wondered if they could mix in some traditional Icelandic music as well. There was only one problem. The oldest music with instruments Linus could find was church music for the pump organ, introduced to Iceland in the 1800s. Linus wanted folk music, something with a mandolin, a guitar, flutes, the accordion, drums, anything at all. But he found nothing. What he found instead was vocal folk music, something unique called kvæði. Kvæði is 85% about poetry. You know, it's just 15% music or singing. It's, it's, a, it's a way to mediate poetry, and that's why we have a special word for it. We don't call it singing, because it's between singing and reciting. And that's why it's so incredibly repetitive. They, you know, they always end in the same way because that's how you deliver the punchline of every single verse. You know, so there's always a punchline and you have to like drag it out. Like, Lipnar hagur hirtnar brau Hefs no praga kjörðin That is just kvæði. Within the kvæði tradition, there are also harmonies for two voices, called tvisengur, and long-form ballads called rimur that can be as long as 800 stanzas. Some melodies lend themselves to multiple forms. The melody Linus just sang can either be sung solo as a kvaithi, or it can be sung by a duo as a stemma, a form which begins in unison, like kvaithi, and finishes in a harmony of fifths, like tvisengur. So you only the only thing that makes it tvisengur or not kvaithi is you add a fifth, the fifth above it. You sing it in unison and then you do the fifth. Like, Lipnar hagur hirtnar brau Hefs no praga kjördin It's very satisfying, which, which the other ones aren't, you know. Like, kvaithi is never satisfying after two verses. Like, you have to kind of... There's something rep- about the repetition, you know. But it's a really, really special tradition. It's so different. Uh, 
And, and, and I think that, you know, the Tvisengur is a certain time capsule, not from the Viking Age, you know, not sure when, like maybe 1300s or something. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's just such a special thing. These traditions have been preserved in large part by the Kvaithamana Fjellag, or Society for Kvaithi, which was formed in 1929. Linus has become an enthusiastic member of this society. I'm actually uh, like a vice member of the board. <laughs> but his membership hasn't given him the one thing he really wants, songs that he can take to the pub and play with his friends. Which is where our interview began. How could pre-modern Icelanders not have instrumental music? Where are the instruments? Where, like, why didn't Icelandic people play instruments? Why didn't they buy instruments from the people that they were trading with? Why didn't the people they were trading with, why didn't they learn how to make instruments from them? Or when they traveled abroad, why didn't they bring instruments back? Or if they did, like, why didn't they play them? Why didn't they learn them? Althinki gathered annually. And there was this big festival, like it was five days or something, where people like, it took like seven weeks to travel from the East Fjords. And they, you know, built this city for five days out of tents and everything went on. There must have been music there, you know? And, and if there was one person playing music, everybody must have gone crazy over it, you know? Like, this big gathering of the whole country and there's music. It's great. Like, how can Althinki not have been the, the thing that created the Icelandic music tradition? This one guy playing like a bone flute, you know, surely would have been a legend, you know? And it's such a mystery. Or, or even not just, you know, an Icelandic person, but, but a, someone else, like someone from the Basque country or from Norway or something that could play an instrument that would visit Althinki and, you know, charm everyone in a way that they wanted to learn to make music themselves. Or, it's really strange. And uh, I, I cannot be fully convinced that there was no instrumental tradition before the 1800s. But also, I cannot be convinced that there was, because there would be evidence. We have, we have evidence of so much stuff, like archaeological evidence of so many things that went on in Iceland and so many beautiful things that have been made throughout you know, throughout Iceland's history and things that have been imported and why, why, where are the instruments? If there were any, why aren't they, why aren't they in the museum? Uh. Yeah, I totally agree with you. <laughs> if we accept that there was no instrumental music tradition yeah. in Iceland when people came here and settled the country, that someone from another country must have come at some point yeah. and played a song yeah. once. Besides, like, you know, at least half of the population was Irish slaves who had music. Like, we know that, that, like, around that time, there was lots of instrumental music in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So... Where, where are the flutes? Where are the harps? Yeah. I mean, some of those slaves um, became free and they married and, you know, but they would have known how to play them, you know, some of them. And some of them would probably have known how to make them too. And, I, you know, there were forests back then and, you know, the, there were sheep bones and there was skin to make drums out of. It's... It's a real mystery. It's a real mystery. Yeah. 
Iceland is like the like the Bermuda Triangle of music. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, think Viking music. It's something you can instantly recognize. Something you can instantly, like, picture, you know. But... <laughs> But none of it is true. Like, you know, like all of these Viking bands, these like folk bands that try to play like Viking style. It's just such bullshit. Like, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's okay that it's bullshit too. <laughs> like, but the, the, there's the pretense that it's real, you know, which with Viking music is really there. It's like, you know it's so like we're going back to our roots and like this is you know it's like really connected with like national identity and and like assert all these values to it you know it's about like strength and bravery and brotherhood you know and drinking and it's just it's just like be honest about you know that, it, that those are your values those aren't viking values that you also have like at the end of the day, like, is is yeah, it's just myth. I mean, this is how any folk revival is. That you have to figure out like which um, historical falsification you want to include. You know, like all folk revivals are based based on myths and on on you know some very like conscious decisions about what are we gonna like what's how are we going to mediate this tradition? And like, what are we going to think is acceptable? What are the other th people going to think is acceptable? Uh, like a, a, an example of that that I love to bring up is that Irish traditional music was revived, you know, in the sixties and in the eighties, all of a sudden the bazooki was, was a traditional Irish instrument, a Greek bazooki, because one person brought a bazooki to his band, started playing it. Everybody thought it was crazy. Everybody asked him to stop. And then, in a couple of years, it just sounded familiar. And now, bazooki is like one of the main instruments. The same happened in Sweden in the same decade. In the 80s, one guy brought a bazooki to Sweden. He was asked to stop playing, but, you know, he persevered. And now he is considered like the person who defined how to accompany Swedish folk music. You know, both of these have lots of myths attached to them, you know. But... In Irish traditional music, you would be kicked out if you played the saxophone. That would not work. But in Swedish traditional music, it's fine. It's actually quite common. There's plenty of albums of Swedish, Swedish folk music that use the saxophone. <laughs> I don't know if there's something inherent in the music that makes it that way, or if it just happened. If there was a really good saxophonist, like... Saxophonist? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something that people don't realize about about traditions is that is that there is something that is passed down from the generation mm -hmm. before, but each generation is yeah. remaking it for themselves. Yeah. And they take in new influences yeah. all the time. So if we had Rimur in a cafe, we would have to decide do people listen or do people talk, you know? Or do people look at their phones? Yeah. Like, what's the, you know, because you're not just deciding what the, the person in the corner is doing. You, you have to kind of decide what the audience, what you expect from the audience. Or, you know, you just see what happens, of course, as well. Like, but at some point, 
one or the other gets normalized. Yeah. You know, uh, again, in Ireland, if somebody starts singing a ballad, everybody shuts up, you know, in the bar. I've, but I've seen people try to shut other people up in Iceland when <laughs> somebody's singing a ballad. And it's, uh, it's a hilarious encounter. <laughs> Yeah, I really, yeah, I really think that for for all of these traditions, there there are ways to incorporate them. We just have to experiment with with new ways of of using them. And I really wish, and I I, I believe that it has a place in Icelandic society. That it has that it can be a really important thing in Icelandic culture again, because poetry has been this hugely important thing since settlement. You know, so much so that, like, you know, in the descriptions of the settlement, like, when a person is being described, you know, it's going to be, like, four descriptors at most. And one of them is going to be if they're good at poetry. This is, like, one of the ways that you judge another human by. If they're good at poetry. And Icelandic modern society hasn't found a way to, like, have the poetry tradition on the surface. Because people do it. It's really normal, like, after a summer house trip, you know, somebody writes some poetry in the guest book. They write in a formal way with alliteration and rhyme schemes that are very complicated. You know, something about their trip. And, you know, people come up with them while they're driving. And, like, you know, it's, it's something that is going on, but you wouldn't think so if you watch TV or listen to the radio, listen to music, any of the mediums that we have. Like none of them have found a way to have poetry, you know, the Icelandic poetry tradition to be a part of that medium. And I think Tvisungur could be because it's something you can do together. If you learn a few, just a few of them, you know, that deal with different forms, then when somebody does write that in the poetry book, you can all come to uh, in the guest book, you can all come together afterwards and sing what was written with these, like, epic harmonies. Yeah. I think almost nobody, if not nobody, has tried to make Icelandic folk music relevant to other people. Like, it's mostly academics or classical musicians who on the side are making arrangements of folk music, but they didn't grow up or they don't live in it. It's not their main thing. They're not passionate about bringing it anywhere. You know, maybe they're passionate about that particular piece of music that they're making or, you know, that they're arranging for, but they're making it for other people who are like-minded, you know. And then there's, you know, people who grew up with it and, and they just, they're there just to keep the tradition in their lives. But nobody's tried to make any kind of Icelandic folk music relevant to to anyone else, you know, to to use quietly to sing about current political issues. It's never happened. I guess like Thursavlokurin, Nisenski Thursavlokur, they did that in what was it, eighties, seventies, um, but they did this like you know art music take on it, and and. What they did is they made it their own, which is cool, but it means it's not reproducible. And that's the key of folk music. You have to make it your own somehow, but not so much that other people feel like if they are playing this folk song, they're playing your folk song. 
like Eugen Min or Eugen Thin, Visa Vassendorosu, that's a really good example of a kind of successful, I mean, that's quite that a composer added, like it changed the rhythm of and added a part to with a bit of a key change. Uh, so he made it musically very interesting. But it's based on this kvæði. And, uh, you know, lots of singers, I mean, Björk has sung it, and, you know, every every other singer really has too. But nobody feels, you know, nobody thinks it's Björk's song. You know, foreigners might, but um, nobody in Iceland thinks so. You know, everybody thinks of it as a common thing, you know. And most people, I mean, really, really most people don't know that it's, you know, it's... It's a composer who took this and, and made it, made this version and actually has sued people over using it and not crediting him, crediting it as traditional. <laughs> but there's a lesson there. Like, that's how you do it. You take it and you make it musically more interesting. And you, 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 know, you do it to words that are, that are relevant in any age. The song is, you know, it's a poem about longing and missing and, and loss and... Yeah, and then you, you know, he didn't do it on purpose, but then you make everybody think that you didn't write it, that it was always like that. (laughs) Like what you hear? Be sure to subscribe to Crossing North wherever you get your podcasts. Crossing North is sponsored by the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, and we need your help to grow our podcast. Consider donating to one of the many funds that help support the department's mission to Discover, preserve, and transmit fundamental knowledge about the languages, literature, history, politics, and cultures of the Scandinavian, Nordic, and Baltic countries. A gift to the Friends of the Scandinavian Languages and Literature Fund will be especially helpful to production of Crossing North. Go to scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. So it took me about two years to understand how this tradition works. After, like, from joining Quaidam and Afilayeth and until this book was released and, like, having something explained to me that I hadn't understood yet, like, the difference between all these words that are used. And so this is Kvaidi. Um So here. Maitum undi mér hjá höld. Maitum undi mér hjá höld. That's a poem. And uh, kvæði. This it's ferskeit og hringkant. That's the rules of the like what kind of poem it is. And this is the melody. The melody is called stemma. And if you're going to talk about like if you have you have a poem and uh, you ask someone, oh, like which stemma should we sing this to? You could you could uh, just you know hum it. Or you, you could refer to it by its lagabody, which is maitum undi mér hjá höld. So this is the kind of standard poem that this melody is known by. And this is, this is a thing that's known, you know, in music all over. Like church music does this, pop music does this. Like we're going to sing this text to this song. Like if you look at like these, like these songbooks from like the seventies, like socialist songbooks, there are like, you know, here is this radical text about workers' rights sung to this popular song that we all know. So, you know, I've been a part of this and like trying to understand this tradition for a couple of years before that 
came together and like I finally understood the difference between all these things and then I understand how to use it. So this the lagerboy is um but the other day I was hanging out with a friend of mine and we were we were like reminiscing about these days that he had gotten into trouble for a banner that he'd made on a protest that said let's drown uh, Valkyrður, the Minister of Industry, instead of the Highlands. And, you know, people thought it was very violent, and she said her children lost sleep over it, and, you know, he went on TV to defend himself, and and uh, a poet wrote a poem about it, this long poem, in this same form. It's also Ferskeitla, and it's also Rinkan. So, I could sing to him, Þótt ríkistjórn no fleiri flón, fljót og lækist í blið, þá dýr minnsta en dýfsta lón, að drekja einu fíbli. Which says, you know, even though uh, uh, the government is trying to dam all the rivers, um, it's more than enough, you know, you don't need a, a, a big lagoon to drown one fool. So this is how quiet they should be used. When you know a relevant poem, you can recite it. You can just recite it like a poem, or you can sing it. And and if you know what a few different quiet, you know a few different stammer. So like on the next page, there's another one that's also ferskate rinkant. So I could sing that same poem to this melody, and there's probably like a hundred melodies in here that would work for exactly that form. And if I had a poem in a different form, I could, there's a, you know, a bunch of other ones that I could use instead. I, 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 would love, I would love to get to the point where people just know Fjustemur and they can, when appropriate, like when they, can, when they think of a poem or whatever, or they write poetry that they can just recite it, they can sing it, you know. Yeah, because we, we need that. We need like a new medium of, of oral tradition. Because, I mean, my, you know, I don't read music. I'm not classically trained, unlike the vast majority of the people that are performing this. I mean, vast majority. It's like so easy to talk about vast majority when it's like 20 people. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I know like three, four people who perform this kind of music who aren't classical musicians, you know. And they are people that are like steeped in the tradition. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna find my own way through this, but my the attitude that I meet all the time when I kind of start complaining that you know I'm thirsty for for this music and for learning it and I want to learn from people, the answer the usual answer is, but Linus, there's it's all written down. You can just go learn it, and that's not folk music. That's classical music, you know, and of course it's classical mus musicians who are saying this because that's their attitude. They're like, they play classical music, you know, that's the main thing. And then, oh, like, I'm going to do some folk music on the side and I'm just going to look at these notes and I'm going to learn it and then I'm just going to make these cool arrangements for it and then I can perform it and it's going to be great. But we need a, a, a medium for a way to mediate this 
tradition in an oral way. And we have to find find a form that works. Yeah, like that's maybe the biggest reason I'm, in, I'm doing this at all. Like why I really want there to be an Icelandic music scene, you know? It's not just about, like, I come from this, from having been as a kid a part of like the hardcore punk scene, which is really participatory, really DIY and underground and it's not commercial, you know? And when that scene kind of died off, I was really kind of musically lost for a few years where I just didn't know where to like put my energy into. Like, and I knew that I liked the philosophy of folk music. There was the fit together in the same way. Like it's participatory. It's, it's DIY. It's democratic and it's non-commercial or, you know, big part of it is. But it, it took me a really long time, like it took me a couple of years to find the thing that I was, I really tried to be really into uh, like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and stuff like that. And it just didn't work, you know, I, I couldn't get through. And then, and then I started showing up the sessions and, and then I found this thing that I could just, I just play this music, you know, I just learn, <clears throat> it's so simple, you just learn a few tunes and then you just a part of this thing and you can play and you can keep playing and you can keep learning and you can keep making connections over it and you can play with people, which in my opinion is the main purpose of music. It's for musicians to socialize with each other and with, with others. And that's why like, you know, Jamie calls this social music is these definitions of this social music and then there's antisocial music, like casual music is antisocial. It's like, it's not about socializing. It's about it you know, elitism and, <laughs> you know, of course it's about beauty, you know, but there's thousands of, and thousands of, of Icelanders who learn to play instruments. You know, we have really high um, percentage of, of children that learn instruments, but adults who have learned instruments, when they meet, they can't play together. They can take out their instruments and they don't know what to play because they haven't learned how to play with other people. They don't have a common common repertoire, you know, and they, they might not know at all how their instrument works in relation to other instruments. It's just not a part of... And maybe they spend 10 years learning how to play that instrument and they can't. It's like, it's so ridiculous. And people can do that. They can play, they can start from scratch and play in a session after two, three years of, of practicing their first instrument. And then it's just... You know, once you're at that point, you just go forward. Like, you just learn more tunes and you get better. I, I find this completely unacceptable that that people who know how to play instruments don't know how to play them with other people. And all, all of that, which they've learned, they cannot, they have no way of using because they're not, the you know, the first fiddle in the orchestra, you know? They're, they're not playing the viola, like accompanying this, you know, being a part of this huge orchestra or whatever. They're, and they're not performing as a solo artist, you know, because they're not going to practice for five hours a day to, to get there. And, that's, and, and also that's not what music is for, you know, it's for, it has this social purpose. And so that's why, like, like it's important that there's a folk music scene, both for there to be like a music scene that has that participatory attitude and also um, to try to build a common repertoire for a nation, basically. 
that's what folk music is. It's like the common repertoire of, of a nation. Yeah, we just have to. I don't know. We have to start somewhere. <laughs> we have to make it. We have to create it somehow. Yeah, and that's I'd say that's my life's work. <laughs> so, like, if I succeed, please write that on my tombstone. <laughs> Success. <laughs> you successfully falsified a tradition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. has been busy since our interview last August. He and his fellow folk musicians have been adapting Kfaithi for instrumental performance, and Linus was kind enough to share the piece you are listening to now. Linus is also organizing a new folk music festival in Reykjavik, May 31st to June 2nd. If you're going to be in Iceland, you should definitely check it out. Details will be posted in English and Icelandic on vakafolk.is. That's V-A-K-A-F-O-L-K dot I-S. If you want to hear more from Linus, links to his music are in the show notes for this episode and on our website, scandinavian.washington.edu. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's intro music was used with permission by Christian Hranert Paulsen. Links to his music are also in the show notes for this episode and on our website. Once again, our website is scandinavian.washington.edu. All right, Linus, take it away. <laughs>